Genesis 38, uh, as a pastor and a preacher, um, you know, you're, you're, you're scheduling out uh, the Word of God. We're working together as elders and, you know, working out the schedule and uh, kind of distributing the, the preaching load and determining who has what chapter. And uh, I'll be honest with you, Genesis 38 wasn't um, the one that I just raised my hand on and said, hey, sign me up for that one. Uh, I'm ready to preach that one, looking forward to that one, marking it on my calendar. It's just, it's just not that type of, of chapter, right? We're not going away from that, just feeling extremely fresh and refreshed and, and blessed from the Word of God. But I think that we can arrive at that destination if we remember who God is and who He has been throughout the book of Genesis. As we consider the circumstances of chapter 38 and we reconcile them against who we have known and seen God to be, how He has come through, how he's been faithful, how he has um, fulfilled his promises to uh, his covenant people. We cannot forget the context that we have brought to chapter 38, and I'm hopeful that it'll be um, the support as we continue to work through some of these difficult uh, verses within chapter 38 here this evening. So you've, you've read ahead. I, I've asked you to do that this morning. Um, Uh, for some obvious reasons. And um, I want to start out by just three simple reminders. This isn't my outline, uh, just reminders for us once again when we come to challenging and difficult passages as a church, as elders and as pastors. How do we approach these? What is our view and perspective as we come to challenging passages? First of all, our desire here as elders is that we would be faithful to preach the whole counsel of God. Faithful to preach the whole counsel of God, there is a tendency uh, for pastors and for teachers to skip over or to go around or to, quite frankly, just flat out ignore challenging and difficult passages that are present in the Word of God. Um, We believe in the ministry of expositional teaching and preaching. We think it is so important and foundational, not just to the health of our local church, but to you and your own personal walk with the Lord to be able to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, precept upon precept through the word of God. There is value in that. And uh, we, we want to be faithful to remain that. So pray, pray for pray these things for us as, as elders and pastors. Hold us accountable to that, to preach the whole counsel of God. Secondly, our desire is to present the text in an accurate but yet appropriate way. And this one is certainly important as we look at difficult passages. Family worship is an intentional uh, thing here at Liberty Hills Bible Church. This isn't just pragmatic, hey, we don't have children's worship hour or anybody to fulfill that ministry. So I guess we just have to have the kids in with us. No, we this is intentional that we have children and young people together with mom and dad as collectively as the body of Christ diverse from a generational perspective that they can grow up and see the worship of the Lord together. And it's important for us to hear the word of God accurately presented and preached, but yet in an appropriate way. And I think we can do that yet even in chapter number 38. The third and final point that I want to remind us of this evening is this, that we want to focus on the actual meaning of the text. 
Uh, it's important as we look at chapters such as this, we can get hung up on words or phrases or circumstances, and we can allow those things to cause confusion and to drown out the actual meaning of the Word of God, right? We believe that all Scripture is profitable. And so, yes, even challenging and difficult circumstances, uncomfortable circumstances are profitable for us. This is by inspiration of the Word of God that Moses has penned these words for us, right? And so we have to understand that as we challenge, if we're challenged with difficult things in the Word of God, there's a way to navigate through them in a very healthy and appropriate way, and that's our goal, that's our prayer, that we would do that. And so um, as we continue to work through Genesis and for all of our preaching ministry, I pray that you would consider those three things for us and hold us even accountable to those, those things. So with that said, let's open in a word of prayer this evening. Ask God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father God, we come to you this evening Again, needing to hear from your word. What an incredible means of grace it is for us to gather as the body of Christ. And in this day that we live in, right here, even in the United States of America and in different regions and areas of the country, that is being threatened. That potentially that right or privilege that we have enjoyed for so many years uh, seems to be falling on hard times. So Father God, let us not take for granted the incredible opportunity it is for us to gather with fellow saints, brothers and sisters in Christ to worship you, to sing praises to you, to lift up a, a joyful noise to you, to magnify your name together. But God, I pray that the gathering of your church would not just be vain repetition. It would not just be something that hey, we mark it on the calendar. This is what we do once a week. But Father, it's something that we long for, that we're intentional with, that we steward well for your glory, God. And in the brokenness of our implementation of church through the maybe missed notes or fumbled transitions or even in the challenges that we have in working through a difficult passage, Father, I pray that you would be glorified, that you would be magnified, that your name would be made great among us. Father, you promised that you would build your church. The gates of hell would not prevail against it. So, Father, we're reminded as we continue to look forward to the days ahead and the uncertainty that may be with what our gathering looks like and how it's facilitated. Father, we trust you. We place our faith in you. We do not fear. Father, we know that you, God, Christ, are head of this church. We are your bride, and I pray that we would remain faithful no matter what the society and culture may deem as essential or non-essential, relevant or irrelevant, Father, that we would believe your word and follow you. Father, I pray now as we look into Genesis 38, I pray that you would cause us to not just receive an expositional message, but we would be expositional listeners. We would be following the word of God and we would be 
rightly applying it to our own lives, we would be in tune to how the Holy Spirit is leading and prodding and directing. That our lives, our actions, our thoughts, our reactions would be reconciled this evening with the Word of God and that we would be changed as a result of being here this evening. Father, I pray that you would quite our hearts. I know many of us come into this gathering with uh, burdens, uh, baggage, um, struggles, relationally, physically. We're tired. Relationally, we're, we, we have potential strife. I pray that during that time of confession that we might have laid that down. If not, Father, let us do that right now and that we would be ready to receive your word, that it would, it would, it would fall on fertile ground and that it would take root and grow. It would bear fruit that would remain. We ask these things, Father, in your precious name. Amen. Amen. So before we dive into the details of chapter 38, I want to talk about, just at a high level, the placement of chapter 38 uh, right here in Genesis. Um, you know, we we saw 37. We, we've devoted two weeks to kind of working through chapter 37 and kicking off these Joseph narratives. And we're all excited about Joseph working through this final phase of Genesis. And then, boom, chapter 38 just seems to kind of throw us a little bit of curveball. And, and we have now this, this um, narrative between uh, Judah and uh, Tamar, and, and there, it seems to just kind of a head scratcher, like, what's going on here? Did Moses, like, forget about this, and, you know, he, he added it in, or, or what's going on here with kind of this interruption with the Joseph narrative, and it seems to be kind of awkwardly placed, right? So I, I want us to draw our attention back to chapter 37, verse number 1. Chapter 37, verse number 1, we have here, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan, verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. Okay, so we kind of have that umbrella, verses 1 and part of verse 2, that are tying chapter 37 and 38 together to point back to whom? uh, Jacob's genealogy and his line. Okay, so Moses starts out with giving us clear direction and tying this back to Joseph. He then kind of puts a bow on the Joseph narrative for just a moment. There's a settledness. We know that Joseph is now where? He's in Egypt, right? He's been sold into slavery. He's there. The brothers are where they're at. And now he's drawing our attention away from Joseph for just a moment and having us take a look back to these other generations of Jacob, which are now specifically diving into Judah and and his sons and this um, line that will now be extended from Jacob through Judah and, and Tamar. And so I want to just make that connection. It seems to be out of place. It seems to be awkwardly located, but it works. It's connected and it ties back to that introductory statement there in chapter number 37, verses one and two. It's also important to note there that there's similarities between the structure of these two storylines, right? We have some poetic justice and irony that's also given here by way of Judah and the things that happened to him throughout this chapter. But we, in both narratives, we have Jacob and Judah both being deceived. You'll remember at the end of chapter 37, Jacob is deceived by whom? The brothers, right? In this uh, particular instance, we have uh, Judah being deceived. And in both cases, we have a piece of evidence 
that's presented by way of bringing a resolution to that deception. With the story of Joseph, we have his coat of many colors being uh, spilled with blood and uh, the deception that was there. In our case here in chapter 38, we have uh, Judah's signet and his staff that are presented as, as proof and evidence to, again, bring a kind of a resolution to this particular narrative. So there's some similarities in the structure and the motifs and how things kind of work and flow from chapter 37 and chapter 38. So all that to say, chapter 38 is, is just fine. Uh, it's, it's fine right where it's at. There's a lot of people who have gotten sideways with chapter 38 and have used its placement and its structure to even try to discredit in many ways its validity uh, within um, this, this placement within in Genesis. So um, I, I thought I'd just make a few opening comments concerning the placement of the chapter. Furthermore, I'd like to point our attention to the fact that this narrative will explain many of the future dynamics within the tribe of Judah. We see Judah throughout chapter 38 making some very poor decisions. And as a result, we see his sons and ultimately his line that will in some ways fall into this process of making poor decisions and having conflict and separation and, and isolation. So it's a glimpse in these formative years of the tribe of Judah that we see kind of the downstream, again, implications of the choices that Judah makes right here in chapter number 38. But despite some really bad and even sinful choices, we've made it clear that our big idea is anchored around the sovereignty of God. So let's look at our big idea this evening. It's this, God remains sovereign and his plan of redemption will not be undone even as others reject his will and ways. Let's state that one more time. God remains sovereign and his plan of redemption will not be undone even as others reject his will and his ways. So this evening, we're just going to make three, again, simple observations. We're going to let the text drive that outline. We're going to make an observation first about Judah. We're going to make an observation second about Tamar, and then thirdly, we're going to make an observation about God and how his sovereignty pulls all things together, these difficult circumstances, these challenging dynamics, and how God's sovereignty is weaved all through chapter number 38. So the first point is this, Judah's household complicates matters due to their rejection of God's ways. Judah's household complicates matters due to their rejection of God's ways. So what's the core issue of chapter 38? As you read it this morning, as you worked through it maybe uh, earlier in this week, what's the core issue? The core issue is this, that Tamar is now a widow and she's childless. That's a big problem in that culture and in that day, right? That not only would she be a widow, but she would be childless as a widow. So that's, that's a big problem. So as we look at the core theme working throughout this chapter, that's the thing that we're attempting to resolve as we see all these different dynamics and relationships and, and marriages and poor choices and sinful choices. It's all working towards Tamar being a widow and being childless. Here in this chapter, we have Tamar's, you could even call it a right that she has by way of um, the Leveret Law 
Okay, if you'll remember back to um, some different passages, you can remember back even to Ruth and the kinsman redeemer. There's uh, this Leverett law it has been identified as that when a, uh, when a woman would lose her spouse, it would be the right and the role of the nearest brother to do what? Take that widow as his wife. And ultimately in that new union, the firstborn son would then be accounted to not his line, but actually to the deceased brother, right? It was a way of extending the line of that brother on as would be his his birthright. And so this is what we have here. We have the leveret law being continually exercised. And then the third time it's not, and it causes some problems. But I want us to understand kind of the cultural dynamics that are going on here that would lead to uh, Tamar being kind of passed on from, from Ur to Onan to Sheila and the progression of that. It, it makes sense. Why? Because it would be a cultural dynamic. This would be appropriate for Judah to handle Tamar and try to resolve her issue of being childless in this way. So it kind of seems somewhat uncomfortable. Like, look, Tamar's lost two husbands and it just seems like she's just being passed along and being mishandled and misrepresented and just seems like she's a victim in the story. In many ways she is, but yet there's this cultural dynamic that makes sense of some of these things. So keep that in the back of your mind as we're working through the rest of this passage. We can remember that this Leverett law would be established formally by God. This would be appropriate, not just culturally, but was establishing God's law back in Deuteronomy chapter number 25. So this would be a common practice. It's why it was deployed in Ruth. Uh, That's why we have Boaz as the kinsman redeemer. This is the cultural dynamics that were leading to that, right? So we have some interesting insights here. Let's tee up this first point on Judah. Who is Judah? What's going on in his life at this point? Um, It's noted here that Judah is the first of the brothers to turn aside and take a Canaanite wife. If you will remember in previous patriarchal conversations and um, communications from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to their sons, they made it clear that they were not to do what? Take a Canaanite as their wife. And here we have Judah with this terminology from our passage, turning aside and taking this Canaanite as his wife. Judah certainly would have known of the precedent of, again, all these patriarchs concerning the disapproval of marriage with Canaanites. So what did Judah do? He willfully rejected God's will and ways concerning the establishment of his household. So this is the foundation that Judah is is starting his life on. A very poor and willfully rejecting of not only just his father's desires and generations to come, but what God had established among his His people, Judah willfully rejected God's will and ways. So again, as we think about the downstream impact, is it any surprise to see that Judah's sons did not honor or pursue God's wills, will or ways as well? Again, is it any surprise that Ur and Onan Interacted and operated and made choices the way that they did with the consequences that unfolded among them. Who set that precedent? Who set that example for the household? It was Judah himself. 
Man, just a small sidebar for, for us. I want to, again, uh, engage in eisegesis. I'm certainly not doing that, but as I consider the implications for uh, the direction of a household, I think there's some for us here. Whose shoulders is it on for, for us to set the tone of the household and the direction of obedience or disobedience? For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's on the shoulders of whom? The man, the husband, the father. The best way that we can do that is how? To avoid the willful neglect of God's will and ways in your home. If you know, brother, that you are actively sinning, if you are actively and willfully neglecting God's will and ways, the dynamic the environment, the atmosphere of your home is more than likely going to not be that of the Lord. It's likely going to be strife and dissension, difficulty. That's on us, brothers, to set that tone in the home. Whether it be sins of omission, sense of commission, things that you're neglecting or things that you're actively doing that are wrong. We need to take clear steps to acknowledge those points of failures, confess them to God and our family and be restored in a right relationship vertically with God and horizontally with our spouse and, and with our children. Brothers, let's not allow sin to be present in our home. Let us not willfully reject the clear commands of Scripture. Last week, set a dynamic and a precedent and an example among our children and for our wife that would be that of disobedience, diluting the, the power and influence of the Word of God and His precepts in our life and in our home. Let's remember this, living in willful neglect of God's will and ways will never end well for us personally or for our families. Is there not a warning that we can see from Judah's household it will cause us to remember those things. So now we have here the firstborn of Judah, Ur. He takes his wife, Tamar, in verse number seven. Let's read that, verse number seven of chapter number 38. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. This is all we know about Ur. Uh, this is... Man, I, I would hate for this to be the testimony of, of my life and the word of God. One verse, um, he took Tamar as his wife. He was wicked in the eyes of God and the Lord took his life. He's simply just deemed wicked in the sight of God. Um, that's, that's heavy. Again, if I'm just being honest with you, that's, that's heavy stuff for us to consider, right? We're, we're not given insight. This makes it probably more challenging. We're not giving insight to the degree or the nature of his wickedness. We're just told that Ur was wicked so much so in the sight of the Lord that God saw fit to take this man's life. The Lord has demonstrated swift judgment in similar ways in previous chapters. We know all the way back in Genesis chapter 6 that all of his creation was deemed wicked and evil in the sight of the Lord. And then chapter 19, we know that the Lord destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
where we know all kinds of immorality and, and debauchery were taking place. So although we're not given insight into the specific sins of Ur, we know this, that it has to be on the degree of a Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 6 type of wickedness for God to pursue a life in this way. We have in verse 8, Judah honoring this Leveret law and giving direction to now Onan to take Tamar as his wife. We see that Onan obliges his father's request, but he does so for his own personal gratification and not to honor his father, his deceased brother. And certainly he doesn't take Tamar as his wife to honor the Lord. As such, we see in verse number 10, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and Onan was also put to death. We think of the horrible sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. We think of the cultural dynamics in Genesis chapter 6, how sin had waxed worse and worse, so much so that the Lord pursued his creation, his image bearers, to the point of, of death. We consider in the life of this second brother what seemed to be an unknown sin. This wasn't a horrible public sin. Onan in his heart before the Lord was simply dishonoring his will and his ways. He was pursuing a relationship not to honor the Lord, but for his own personal gratification. And as such, the Lord in his perfect holiness and justice and character took the man's life. That's, that's a big deal. So we have almost two flavors of sin that we see God pursuing in the same way with the same severity of consequence. And so don't we have sometimes in our own human nature a problem with trying to categorize the, the severity of sin? Did, did you ever fall into that trap that, hey, my sin isn't as bad as somebody else's. I haven't done this, this, or this, so I'm okay. So the sin that I am actively harboring in my life or the sin that I am uh, allowing to be present, the willful neglect that I am engaged in in my life can just kind of be swept under the rug and be deemed as respectable or okay or under control. The private hidden sin of onion carried with it the same grave consequences. He was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and as such, he was put to death. So we have two brothers, wicked in the sight of the Lord, both now dead. Taking a step back, what can we learn about the Lord here in this passage, understanding how he interacted with both Ur and Onan? We contend that it's this. We see here that God is very concerned with his people honoring his will and his ways. God is very concerned with his people faithful to honor his will and his ways. Friends, there's a, there's a warning for me 
There's a warning for you to consider our heart, to consider our interactions, to consider our relationships. In what ways, in what fashion are we not honoring the Lord? In what ways are we not honoring His will and His commandments and His ways? Friends, we should never be comfortable or at ease with the act of rebellion against God. For God's character, namely His holiness, demands that His people take the relationship with Him very seriously. This is, this is the warning that calls out to us from the actions and the consequences of both Ur and Onan. There is a responsibility that God's people have in, pers- in, in the relationship with the Lord. That being said, aren't you thankful as we remember in our day, in our time, aren't you thankful for God's grace, the maintenance of our holiness isn't up to me or my good works, but he's given me the word of God, the Holy Spirit. He's given me the ministry of prayer and confession, the body of Christ, the brothers and sisters in Christ to come to my aid in my time of need, in my wandering, in my in my strain, in my rebellion. He sends the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, after me. The, the, the sheep that has wandered astray, Christ comes after me. Not only that, but Christ sends an army of resources that I just mentioned after me. This is, this is a beautiful reality of what relationship with God through Jesus Christ offers us as believers, fellow heirs chosen by God with an inheritance with Jesus in heaven for all eternity. He's given us those things, those means of grace to help us in our relationship with the Lord. We see in verse number 11, a transition in this narrative. Look at me at verse number 11. Let's read it together. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Sheba, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So what did Tamar do? Tamar went and remained in her father's house. see now a transition where many of the verses were focused on uh, Judah and his sons. Now we see uh, Tamar being front and center here in this narrative. Judah gives instruction to Tamar to simply remain a widow. Now, it's hard for us to fully grasp the difficulty of that statement from Tamar's perspective. She knows there's a third son. She knows the Leverett law. She knows her right to be an heir to that son. To come together in union, to bear a child, and to extend the line of Judah. She knows that she is to be a part of that. But yet, that right is being withheld. And she's being told by Judah, just, Tamar, just remain a widow. This would be a devastating blow emotionally, spiritually, physically to Tamar. But this speaks to her character. What does Tamar do? 
At the end of verse number 11, what's that phrase? Tamar went and simply obeyed, remained in her father's house. Judah is now grasping for anything. He is acting in fear. He is concerned that the Lord has taken the life of Ur. He's taken the life of Onan. What would be different with with Shelah? And he is now fearful for his own son. And he acts. He takes action based off the emotion of a fear. Here's something that we've seen throughout the book of Genesis, have we not? We've talked about this over and over again, how the patriarchs have been fearful. They've been uncertain. They've attempted to take matters into their own hands. That fear has caused them to doubt the will and the way of the Lord. It's caused them to doubt that God would fulfill his covenant promises despite what he said he would do. They're doubting. And that stems from the root of fear. So fear is absolutely 100%. It's stated right there in the text. It's the driving force behind Judah's further disobedience to God. Based off of the custom and the will and the way of the Lord, this would have been known that Judah should immediately offered up Shelah to take Tamar as his wife. But not only did he delay, excuse me, but he refused to do so. Here we have again in chapter 38, fear rears its ugly head yet again. God is not the author of fear or confusion. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. We need to, by God's grace, friends, for our application, identify fear and place that fear at the foot of the cross. Friends, there's a stark reminder here from chapter 38 that 100% of the time, if we take action in the spirit of fear, we likely will make a choice that dishonors the Lord. Just as Judah did right here. He knew what he should have did, what he should have done. He was fearful of that decision and choice. And so he instead dishonored the Lord as he acted in that spirit of fear. So in this case, Judah was willing to allow this fear to cause incredible consequences and impacts into the relationships that are present here. Judah was willing to withhold the right that Tamar had to marry the active heir to the family, Shelah. As such, Judah was um, content with Tamar remaining a widow and without children. This would be a state of dishonor in that culture in that day. This would have been an incredible burden for Tamar to bear. And he was just okay with that negative impact on the life of Tamar. He was fine with it. The impact of Judah acting out in fear doesn't stop there. For in doing so, Judah was risking, get this, Judah was risking the continuation of the family line by withholding Shelah from Tamar. There was nothing logical or reasonable about Judah's actions. He was simply acting in fear and it had incredible impacts and implications. So let's uh, do a quick debrief on the life of Judah thus far. 
It's not a great reputation that he has compiled here uh, up to this point, is it not? You remember chapter 37, who was it that initiated the sale of Joseph into slavery? Judah. It was Judah that willingly separated from his brothers and turned aside to marry the Canaanite woman. Now two of his three sons are dead. So what is what does Judah do? Does he understand the error of his way? Is he, is he overwhelmed with the gravity of his sin before a holy God? Does he repent and come back to the Lord? No. He digs his heels in further. And here, Judah, I guess we could call it, made his, his last stand. He was going all in with his pride, all in with his rebellion, all in with his willful neglect of God's will and ways. There was no turning back at this point for Judah. So we saw first point that Judah's household complicates matters, to say lightly, due to their rejection of God's ways. Our second point is this, Tamar's desperate actions were blessed and fueled by an obedience to God's ways. So we have a contrast here. Tamar's desperate actions were blessed and fueled by an obedience to God's ways. We won't go into a lot of details here uh, between this interaction of, of Judah and Tamar, but as we move on to this next section, we have Judah doing what? He's going up to, to Timnah. And this is commonly understood that this would have likely been a festival of, of sheep shearing. Uh, this would uh, commonly been a, a group of, of many uh, shepherds that would uh, gather together for this festival of sorts, this time of the year for the sheep to be sheared. And so there would have been a, a gathering. There would have been a group of, of people on any festival of sorts. There probably would have been um, some uh, potential drinking involved. There would have been potentially some compromising of the ability to reconcile and discern uh, who people were on uh, that particular day or given moment. And so here we have uh, Tamar looking for an opportunity. She has been patiently waiting and obeying uh, the request of Judah to simply remain a widow. And she's understanding at this point that Judah has zero intention of giving Sheila as uh, her husband in honoring the, the lover at law. And so here we have, here we have Judah going up to Timnah. Tamar hears of this activity and she sees this as an opportunity uh, to potentially uh, reconcile things, uh, an opportunity to um, divert uh, this potential consequences of this line of, of Judah through Jacob being ended right here. So what does she do? She takes matters into her own hands. She takes a dangerous, friends, this would be a dangerous risk that, that Tamar is, is taking here. It's calculated though. She, she ensures that the family lineage will go on and as such, uh, she engages in this plot. 
She makes herself available. And here we have Judah on his way to the festival. And we have Tamar at the gate. But regardless, we have Judah now with Tamar. Tamar does, what does she do? She wisely sets some terms of this interaction. She requires Judah's signet and staff as someone collateral until this goat that's referenced here could be served as, as a type of a payment, that it could be delivered. And so she's holding on to, to Judah's signet and Judah's staff as he's making his way up to Tima for this festival of, of sheep shearing. From Judah's perspective, this was an engagement. It's in the past. He's moved on. He's gone up to Timna. He's engaged in this sheep shearing festival. He's attempted to make right on the commitment that he gave to deliver this, this goat uh, back to Tamar that he doesn't know again is Tamar. And here we have it now, three months later, in verse number 24. Let's read that together. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Sheila. And they did not know her again. Pregnant. And this would have been a, a big problem for Tamar, assuming that this pregnancy was from outside of Judah's household. Judah, in an act of hypocrisy, condemns Tamar's actions as what? Immoral, as if he hadn't been, and sentences Tamar be killed. You can see the providence of God working through this as Tamar rightfully held on to this staff and this signet. It's presented forward as what evidence of this interaction between Judah and Tamar. Verse 26, Judah can only say, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Sheila, it's interesting here, friends, that as we look through this interaction, this narrative, the text never casts any sort of judgment on Tamar for her actions. To even take that a step further, she seems to be viewed favorably as she's referenced back in, or forward in Ruth chapter 4, verse number 12. We stack Tamar up against our current standards of Christian marriage. It's difficult to not have an uneasy feeling in our stomach about Tamar's actions, is it not? There seems to be some deception. There seems to be uh, some other dynamics there that uh, just don't sit right with our idea of covenant marriage as we see from a New Testament perspective, right? Uh, but as we look at Tamar, everything that she has done um, was allowed to her by way of the current law. 
right? So as we consider that our text and really the whole of Scripture never cast a negative judgment or a negative view on Tamar, we have to be okay with that. Um, everything, again, that she engaged in or did was permitted under the law at that time. And if anything, God used the actions of Tamar as a clear indictment against whom? Not herself, but Judah. And through Tamar's actions, Judah is exposed as unlawful, willfully neglecting God's will and way, and quite frankly, sinful. So friends, we've seen that Judah's household complicates matters due to their rejection of God's way. Second, we observe that Tamar's desperate actions were blessed and fueled by an obedience to God's ways. This brings us quickly to our third and final point. God's will is firmly established even as sin threatens to undermine his ways. God's will is firmly established even as sin threatens to undermine his ways. These final few verses, verses 27 through 30, they provide some resolution, we could call it, to these crazy circumstances that are recorded here in chapter 38. God is no doubt faithful to Tamar throughout this chapter. Husband after husband, compromising situation after another, God is faithful to Tamar. So much so that he gives the blessing of children to Tamar as she um, brings into this world two sons, twins. Friends, I can't help but draw our attention to the fact that this is a bigger deal in the broader perspective of God's story of redemption, as Andy alluded to during our, our time of worship uh, early in our service. Do we remember God's foretelling of the seed of the woman back in chapter 3, verse number 15? The one who do, will do what? Crush the head of the serpent. This line, the seed of the woman, is preserved and protected and it carries on through Judah and in spite of Judah. And God uses Judah to bring about his perfect plan of redemption for generations to come. That doesn't happen without Judah's seed. And who does he use? He uses Tamar. What do we know about Tamar so far? In the world's eyes and in that day, Tamar was damaged goods. She was broken. She was forgotten. She was told to just go into the household and be a widow. God had other plans. God had other plans. And this is the beauty of his sovereignty. Do you remember this? God is sovereign at all times. Over all peoples. This is the sovereignty of God exercising his authority in the midst of a depraved world broken by sin. God is there. He's working. His perfect plan of redemption in the midst of the ugliness of the depravity of mankind, God is sovereign. Friends, this is an incredible reminder for us to anchor our hearts on and our minds in in the moment of chaos and uncertainty in the world that we live in. We look around and we say, man, this is the worst it's ever been. We say, come Lord Jesus. But as we look at scripture, we see the same brokenness there that we see present in our day. 
And guys, we have to remember that the same God that is sovereign there is sovereign here. He's infallible. He's the, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can place our complete confidence and trust in that sovereign God, knowing that everything that happens in this world will bring glory to him. We can't understand that. In our finite minds, it's difficult to reconcile an infinite God, but friends, we look at the word of God and we have to trust and believe that that is true because we we see it true in chapter 38. And friends, can you not see it true in your own life? So in similar fashion, here in these final few verses, we have a similar story to that of Jacob and Esau, and Joseph and his brothers. We have yet again the birth of these twins, the theme of the younger triumphing over the older. Perez, is, is he, he, what does he do? He fights his way out first, and, and Zira comes out second. And, and there is much that could be alluded to in the future chapters, but the key takeaway here is that God's will which, by the way, is already established before the foundations of the world, that will cannot be thwarted. It cannot be changed. It cannot be undone, even by sinful choices, even by the brokenness that we see in this world. God's sovereignty and authority over all things, over all peoples at all times, remains a constant and universal truth and reality. So we see that providence of God working out here, even in the delivery of these sons. If we've learned anything about God through this series in Genesis, it's that he is sovereignly determining to bring about his perfect plan of redemption. But have we not also learned that his perfect plan of redemption involved a lot of imperfect people in imperfect circumstances? Do you remember that? God chooses to use imperfect people to bring about his perfect plan of salvation. He has given us as ambassadors, representatives of Jesus Christ, the stewardship of that message. And we are to herald it, to bring it to the ends of the earth that Jesus saves. And so, friends, let us not believe the lies of Satan that we, that Tamar could have believed, that we're leftovers, that we're damaged goods, that we are too far gone. Because, friends, isn't this the beauty of redemption? Redemption ceases to be redemption if we're not in need of saving. And, friends, we're in need of saving. Because we too are broken by sin. It's in this very act of saving us from sin and its eternal consequences that makes redemption so unthinkable and so beautiful and so valuable. I don't deserve it. I don't even desire it. And I certainly have no ability to accomplish it. But despite the wickedness, despite the sin, despite my rebellion against God's ways, he, meaning God, continues to pursue humanity through the pages of Scripture. And right here in Genesis 38, when sin seemed to threaten the very line of Christ that could have derailed this whole story of redemption, 
God shows his authority. Because what he had already fully established could not be undone. And he used broken people to bring about that perfect and beautiful plan of salvation. Continues this sustaining work of redemption throughout history. This work of redemption, the regaining of what was rightfully his in the first place. And friends, let's remember this. God will not stop this perfect plan. He will not stop using imperfect people in imperfect circumstances because this is a story of redemption. His creation, mankind, will be brought back into relationship with their creator. No one is too far gone. No one is too bad or too lost or too guilty or too used that God cannot redeem. As this is the mystery of the gospel. Isaiah 55 reminds us, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. God remains sovereign, and his plan of redemption will not be undone, even as others reject his will and his ways. This is, friends, the sovereignty of God in the midst of depravity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this evening that you are God, that you're on your throne. We thank you that you've given us Genesis 38. Brokenness, hurt, pain, deception, sin, rebellion. Father, that's, that's me. Thank you for doing that work that we could not do. Praise you, Jesus.